Revelation chapter 3 together this evening. Revelation chapter 3, what we have been doing on Wednesday evenings is looking at different studies that can help us to think more about those who have fallen away from the faith. A few weeks ago we noticed how very real that possibility is. Not only does Scripture tell us that, but also we know that by our own experiences that people walk away from God. And so from that angle we're studying different um, passages and episodes in the Bible and I want to take us this evening to Revelation chapter 3 and begin around verse number 7. We'll be looking at be looking at Jesus' message to the church at Philadelphia. The church at Philadelphia. With your Bible reading, you know that these letters that Jesus sends to various churches recorded here for us in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are letters written to different churches or congregations in Asia of that time. Seven churches of Asia. Philadelphia is one of those. If you look in um, the back of your Bible under the missionary journeys of Paul, that map, you look about the center of the map, you'll see Asia, and you'll start seeing little cities like Philadelphia and Sardis and um, Laodicea, Colossae, and Ephesus. They're all there in that little area. And you'll, you'll see Philadelphia there as well. Jesus had some messages that he wanted to send uh, to, uh, to these churches. This one here, sent to Philadelphia, can help us, can help us strengthen our own faith and also help us to be an agent to strengthen other people's faith as well. Look down before we get actually started. Look at Revelation 3, verse 11. Revelation 3, verse 11, Jesus says, I am coming soon, or quickly. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. See, it's possible to lose our crown, even as one is headed toward heaven to receive that crown. Something or someone can come along and Weaken our faith, and we can lose that crown. So it's appropriate then for us to look at the church here at Philadelphia. Okay. Look at how verse 7 begins. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia uh, I write. Okay. So as you understand, just kind of reviewing for a second, the word church is used in a universal sense referring to all God's believers uh, across the world, but also it's used in a local sense. Most often when we read about it, it's used in a local sense. When Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, upon this rock I will build my church, he's referring to it in a, in a universal sense. But God organized his church mainly in the local sense. He wants his work and his, and, the, and his worship to be carried through the local 
congregations that are set up. So as they traveled in the book of Acts, they would preach the gospel and people would obey and then congregations or churches would be set up in different cities or communities. So the gospel had made its way over to Asia and to this place, Philadelphia, and we're thankful to read about this congregation assembled here. Now, I want to carry you through the general idea of what we're going to do, and then we'll go back and fill in uh, the details. First, I want us to see the description that Jesus gives of himself here. And then I want us to see the command, the challenge that Jesus gives uh, this church in Philadelphia. And then I want us to see how Jesus tells them that you are ready to carry out this challenge, and the implication there is a congregation needs to be ready to carry out uh, this challenge. And then I want us to notice some, some bad news and good news. And then I want us to notice how the Lord promises that I will, I'll be with you and I'll take care of you as you do my will. And then we will end uh, looking at that warning again that he gives here. Okay, Let's begin here in Revelation 3 and verse 7. And notice the description that Jesus gives of himself. He says in verse 7, The words of the Holy One. The Holy One. Now we were thankful Sunday evening to be able to see how that Jesus in his person matches perfectly the attributes of God. And so we're not surprised to read that Jesus refers to himself as the Holy One, because God is holy. Let's notice some parallel passages uh, together right quick. Notice back in John chapter 6, some words from Peter. John chapter 6. Notice this is a follow-up when as Jesus had asked his disciples, will you also go away? And Peter answers, and he says... Well, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. But then part of this response from Peter is picked up in verse 69, John 6, 69. Peter goes on to say to the Lord, to the Lord. He goes on to say, And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The Holy One. We don't talk about that a lot, but Jesus is referred to as the Holy One of God. Look at it back here in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. This is Jesus about to uh, cast out a demon. Mark chapter 1, verse 24, has a conversation with the demon who is inside the person. And the demon, uh, well, let's see. Verse 23, Mark 1, 23, Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you, who you are, the Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. So the demons know who Jesus uh, is. Now run over to Acts chapter 3, back to Peter, as he is preaching a gospel sermon here in Jerusalem. 
in the temple area. Notice what he tells these people, Acts 3, beginning in verse 13. Acts 3, beginning in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. Who was that murderer? Barabbas. Notice Peter's word. Boy, Peter, oh, I wish I could be more like Peter. Look what he said. He's looking right to those people and said, You denied the holy and righteous one. You denied him. You put him on the cross. And he convicted them of their sins. In a broader sense, we're guilty also. Every sin that's committed uh, basically con- contributes to Jesus having to die uh, on the cross. Now we began a study Monday night with um, the men uh, in the book of Proverbs. And I want to throw this bone out at you and let you kind of um, nibble on it. Proverbs chapter 30 Proverbs 30, in verse number 3. Now, most of the Proverbs come from Solomon, but a few of them are not. Here's one from the words of Agur, son of Jacob. Proverbs 30. I'm just going to let you... He seems like he is confessing his weaknesses here. In verse chapter 30, verse 3, he says, I have not learned wisdom, nor have I, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. The Holy One. There's a couple of places in the book of Proverbs, like chapter 9 and verse 10, I believe it is. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. I just wonder if, if or we don't think about prophecies of Jesus being tucked away in the book of Proverbs, but it, it makes you wonder whether uh, that is uh, a reference to our Lord. So Jesus describes himself first as the Holy One, going back to Revelation 3. Verse 7, notice he next, next describes himself as the true one. The true one. We emphasize that Sunday evening uh, pretty much. Jesus is, like he says in John 15, verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and you are the branches. There's a lot of vines in this world that seek to teach things which are transcendent, transcendent or, or spiritual. But there's only one true uh, vine. Only one true vine. One of our favorite places to mark is in 1 John. And you'll want to see this one. 1 John 5, toward the end of the whole book of 1 John. Notice how John sums it up. Nobody sums things up like John. 1 John 5, verse 20. 1 John 5, 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. 
in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Well, I tell you, that's a great testimony about Jesus, if there ever has been. So Jesus is the Holy One. And Jesus is the true one. That means Jesus is the ultimate reality of the entire life as we know it. He's the ultimate reality. All things passing through, all things coming through our minds, must be measured by Him and His Word. He's the ultimate reality. He's the truth. He's the truth. And if what we have learned is incompatible to Jesus and His Word, then we must make the change. We must make the change. We must be able to express that to people who have fallen away in the kindest way that we know how, but express that, that Jesus is the truth. It's not about us, it's about Him. No matter... Who told you that which is false? Or no matter how many people believe that which is false, no matter how long you have believed that which is false, still we can't get around the fact that Jesus is uh, the truth. So in Revelation 3, verse 7, He's the Holy One. He is the true one. And then the third description of Jesus here is, He has the key of David. He has the key of David. Most interesting way of describing uh, the Lord. He has the key of David. David. You know that it was prophesied that the Messiah, Jesus, would come through the lineage of old King David, of the seed of David. And that he would sit upon the throne of David and rule over the house of Jacob. Luke 1 has those references, has those phrases, Luke 1, 32 and 33, has those references. So in that sense, of course, Jesus is the key of, of David. That means he's also the key of understanding the entire scripture, the entire uh, Bible from front, from Genesis through Revelation. He's the key of David. Notice over in, in your Bible in Revelation 22, Revelation 22 and verse 16, the words of our Lord, Revelation 22, verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. I'm the root and offspring of David. Now here's something for you to, to grasp because um, it's not something we look at a lot. But this phrase, this idea of someone having the key of David actually comes from Isaiah chapter 22 and uh, beginning in verse 15 and coming forward. Okay, So let me just explain that right quick. Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah had a lot of... Um, sayings against nations and against groups of people. But here, in Isaiah 22, he's, he's bringing a rebuke against an individual. Okay. In King Hezekiah's court, there was a man by the name of Shebna. Shebna. And it doesn't really say what he did wrong, 
But whatever he did wrong, they decided, God decided, he needed to be replaced. And this is what we're reading here in Isaiah 22, 15, and coming forward. Okay. Now, the man they, dis- they replace him with is named Eliakim. And in Isaiah 22 and verse 22, Eliakim would do some good things. It even says he would open doors and shut doors. And kind of in a symbolic way, Eliakim would be given the key of David. Now, however that was meant to play out there in Hezekiah's day and in God's will is one thing, but ultimately this was meant to be applied to Jesus. And that's what the Lord is doing here in Revelation 3 and verse 7. Jesus is the Holy One, the True One. He is the key of David. And then the fourth description, the final and fourth description of Jesus, is He is the One who opens and shuts. He's the one who opens and shuts. He's the one, and he's the only one, who can grant access to his kingdom. As Peter says in Acts 4 and verse 12, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He's the only one that can grant access. You know, when Jesus was talking about access into his kingdom, he was talking about it to Nicodemus, in John 3, 3 through 5, he said, Whoever is born of water and the Spirit, okay, whoever listens to the Spirit's words in the New Testament and then learns enough to realize you must be baptized for the remission of sin, then that person who follows that is added to the kingdom of the one who has the key of David. And Jesus talked about this to Peter there in Matthew 16, as he's talking about his church slash kingdom, in Matthew 16, 19, he said to Peter, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom. And of course, Peter's the one that stands up on the day of Pentecost and also before the household of Cornelius and other places and, and presents the, the terms, the conditions of entrance into the kingdom, but Peter is doing it based on what the Lord has has uh, told him to do, qualified him uh, to do, authorized him uh, to do. Okay. So this Jesus is the one who opens and shuts. Okay. The problem in our world is that people don't have the right set of key. The one who has the key, Jesus. By the way, Revelation 1, 18 and 19, Jesus pronounces to John, he also has the key of death and Hades because of his resurrection. The one who has the key has given to the apostles and to us in Scripture the keys of the kingdom of heaven. The problem in the world, people are using the wrong keys. I've heard of people who get on the road and they travel and they're going to different hotels and so they'll just, you know how you do, you'll, you'll keep a, a key from one hotel, a little card from one hotel and you'll put it in your pocket and you go to the next one the next day somewhere down the road and you may still have the old one in your pocket. Okay. And then they give you a new one at the, at the next hotel 
and you go up to try to get into your room, if you use the old one, that's not going to work. Okay. The keys you have for the kingdom of Hampton is not going to work in the kingdom of the Holiday Inn Express. Just so, the world's keys, the keys that the world uses, okay, like power and money and control and hatred and lying, all those things the world uses are not the keys of the kingdom of God. Many people cannot find Jesus today because they're using the wrong keys. They don't know about the key. Many people that you and I know, they know about Jesus being the Holy One of God, but they're still using the wrong keys. And they're still not accessing the kingdom of God. If we're going to help bring people back home, then we must use the keys of the kingdom, which is basically the Word of God, the new covenant of Jesus. Okay, so let's move on to the next part here. And that is, notice in Revelation 3 that Jesus gives the ultimate command for every congregation. Doesn't he say? He says in Revelation 3 and verse 8, I know your works, behold... I have set before you an open door. Now, that's what I mean by the ultimate commission or ultimate command for the congregation. I have set before you an open door. I look at this as to be equivalent to the Great Commission. Okay. The Great Commission includes reaching out to those who don't know about Jesus, also reaching out to those who need to come back home uh, to the Lord. I have set before you an, an open door. An open door. References there uh, would be 1 Corinthians 16, verse 9, where talk, Paul talks about an open door being available uh, there in Corinth uh, before he moves on. And then um, Colossians 4, verses 2 through 4, Paul asks others to pray that they may be able to find more open doors for the Word of God. I'm just about 100% convinced this is what the Lord has in mind here when he says, I have set before you an open door. I have given you the commission to go and to do, do what I started. The commission of the head of the church, Luke 19, verse 10, is to seek and save the lost. And so naturally the commission of the body of the church is the same. I have set before you an open door. The Lord is implying here, I think, that there are open hearts out there. Jesus says in Luke 8.15 that it is necessary to find good and honest hearts. And they're out there. They're out there. It, it takes a lot of searching. It takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of asking. But they're out there. And so he says, I have set before you an open door. So he presents to them the ultimate challenge for every congregation. And then the next thing he does here, he says, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. Notice he says here in Revelation 3 and verse 8, he says, I know your works. Okay. I also know that you have kept the word of God. I also know 
that you have not denied my name. Okay. When congregations have, are willing to work, they're willing to be in the Word, and they're willing to be unashamed of the Lord, not deny His name, just like the Lord asked us, you know, Matthew 10, 32 and 33, whoever confesses my name before men, him will I confess before my Father who is in heaven. Okay. So definitely he looks to them, he says, I know your works. I know that you're keeping my word. I know that you're willing to stand up for my name, for what, for what I stand for. Okay. So he's telling them basically, I know that you are ready. Know you're ready. This also tells us that these are the requirements for any congregation to get ready to share the gospel, to do the big ultimate command that God wants us to do. Notice that it is important, naturally, if we're going to follow the Lord, we're going to do works in His name, we're going to keep His word, and we're going to be unashamed of Him. But he, set, he, he also says in the midst of that, I have set before you an open door. So the open door is not studying the word or doing a few good works or just standing up for my name. That's all part of following Christ. But the open door he has set before them seems to be distinguished from these other good qualities that they have. These other good qualities get you ready uh, to actually do the great a commission. Notice here in Revelation 3 and verse um, 8 he says, I know now understand again, Jesus is the Lord because he's the Holy One, he's the true one, he has the key of David, he opens doors, he gives the access and he knows all things. He knows that he walks in the midst of the congregation everywhere. He knows all things. So of course he is Lord. But notice here in verse 8, he says, I know that you have little power. You have little power. That you have some weaknesses. Most likely he's referring here to the fact that they're either small in size, or they're small in resources, or maybe even they, they have very little uh, just ability. But nonetheless, he says, you're ready to do my work. I think this is a marvelous thing to consider. Even though they have little power, even though they're, they're not enamored, they don't have a big name, they don't have a lot of, maybe they don't have a lot of rich people in their pews, maybe they don't have a lot of resources to work with, maybe they have a lot of new Christians who are still learning. Nonetheless, God says, you're ready. You're ready. Every congregation that follows Jesus has all they need to do His will. Okay. We have all we need. Any congregation, a congregation that just starts out with eight people, okay, if those eight people are willing to keep God's Word and not deny the faith, then they are ready to carry out the Great Commission. We have all we need. We've always had all we need. No matter where we meet, we've always had all we need. 
we always will have. If we have these qualities, we have what we need uh, to do the Lord's will. We don't have to have a lot of ability, but it's the heart, it's the desire that Jesus is looking at here. It would also be wise for us to keep ourselves small in our own sight. Never to think that we're all that. Okay. Never to get puffed up. The Lord cannot use men or women or even groups who are puffed up who have any semblance of pride whatsoever. Isn't that why Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount with these ideas. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Okay. If you don't start there, then he can't use you. You have no hope whatsoever. So notice here that he says, I'm on, I've got an ultimate command for you, and I think that you are ready to go. Now, he also says here there's some bad news and good news. Right. The bad news is, he says, in the midst, if you look at verse 9, Revelation 3, verse 9, he says, he says, there's in the midst of you what he calls the synagogue of Satan, who say that they are Jews, but they're not. Okay. Evidently, there are people there who are claiming to be with God probably have some sort of Jewish background, most likely are seeking to combine, combine parts of the old law of Moses with the gospel of Jesus. And then they're claiming that they are also the people of God, but yet they're not. They're not. And so he said, that ends up being a lie, a big lie, that Satan's behind all lies. And this idea that you are people of God when you're not following just the gospel of Jesus is a big lie. A synagogue of uh, Satan. Okay. It's a synagogue. It means whoever this is, they are meeting together. They're worshiping God. They have a lot of religious talk going on. They're doing a lot of religious things. Okay. They're, they're creating pamphlets. They're, they're sending out messages. They have their teachers. They have their preachers. They have a lot of semblance of spiritual matter. They are a synagogue. They're associated with the Jewish religion, but they are not of God. They're not of the Lord. They're of Satan himself. And this compares to our day, as you know, as well. Many are under that false deception. They're under that deception, false idea, that any type of religious activity then must be endorsed by Christ. And Christ makes it plain here that that's just not the case at all. So you see this. You see this. Now, the next part of the letter to me is that Jesus says, if you do my will, then I will take care of you and I will be with you. So let's read that part, Revelation 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, because you have kept my word concerning patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that you do not, no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him to be a pillar 
in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name I will write upon him. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now notice there, he says, I will take care of you. There's trials coming. And that's a lot about what the book of Revelation is about. There's trials coming. Persecution's coming. He says, I will be with you. I will deliver you out of those. And, but a lot of the first century Christians were actually killed, beheaded, pierced with a sword. But God's dealings with men does not pertain to only this life. I wish, I wish that could be really believe that, that this life is only a small portion of what we will be dealing with concerning our God. There's an entire eternity ahead of us. And he says, when, if you do my will, if you keep my word, then you will be part of that ultimate city of God. Okay. You know, the church is referred to as as a temple of God in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 16. We're made part of that church when we obey God. If we remain faithful, then we will be part of God's big congregation uh, in heaven. That's kind of what he's saying here. I have firmly fixed you in the church. If you remain faithful, then you will be firmly established uh, in the ultimate kingdom up above. And so he says, I will be with you. I will... I will be with you and I will, I will take care of you. I'll take care of you. And the first century Christians believed that the Lord would take care of them ultimately. And they were not afraid of what would come to them. We need to capture some of their spirit of faith to be able to do the Lord's will today. And then going back to this warning... He says, hold fast. Hold fast, verse 11. Hold fast. He says, I think you're ready. I think you're ready. You have all the tools you need to reach out into this lost, dark world. But hold fast. And don't let anyone take your crown away from you. Don't let anyone do that. Evil companionships does corrupt good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 That's where things usually go sour sour in faith is when people come into the lives of us or our children or even our parents and grandparents and all of a sudden there's a different story being told. There's a different belief taking place. Turning over to Galatians I want you to notice a verse there if I can discover it again. Galatians 4 verse 7, I think it is. That's not it. Paul says in Galatians 4 verse 11, I'm afraid 
that I may have labored over you in vain. In vain. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for Galatians 5 verse 7. Where he says, You were running well. Who has hindered you from obeying the truth? That's the similar idea there to what Jesus is saying in Revelation 3.11. He says, don't you let anybody take that crown away from you. God promises that. You're going to receive that crown. Don't you let anybody come into your life and start telling you things which are different. Jesus is the true one. He's the holy one. He has the key of David. No one opens and gives access to God other than Jesus himself. Don't you let anybody ever tell you differently. Now Paul is writing his letter here to the churches of Galatia and some of them were falling to the wayside and he points out the problem. Who is in your life? You are doing well. Who is hindering you? Who's hindering you? So consider that. Well, we just went through Jesus' letter to the church at Philadelphia. Any comments or questions you'd like to throw in before we dismiss? Church at Philadelphia, Revelation 3, 7 through 13. And tremendous concern with the Lord's heart. First, that you hold fast. Secondly, that you recognize the open door that is set before you. Well, I hope and pray this has been beneficial. I hope, as we said earlier, that we can share some pieces of information. Maybe most of this is a review, but review some information that will give us the tools we need, but also give us a boost, give us an encouragement. Hopefully we've been able to touch on some of that this evening. What do you think? What do you think? He's good letter? Is that a good letter? Hard to beat letters from Jesus. Sister Susan saying that it's hard to understand why there's not more urgency, more urgency in getting back to the truth. All right, we'll take three or four minute break here and, and um, reassemble for our devotional time.